So let's start like this. We're going to be in Luke 7:34 here in a little bit. Um, no ladies DNA this week. That's on Wednesday night. So happy Thanksgiving. Rest, be with your family, whoever you got to be with. Uh, and we're going to do some Christmas decorating in the window immediately after worship. So uh, if you don't have to run off and you want to instead run out to Shelly's car, grab stuff out of the car, and then bring it in, we're going to decorate the windows and uh, be festive for our downtown. Uh, and a got a Christmas, <coughs> Christmas tree for the kids. They'll be decorating that on their own in the next few weeks. So, um, so if you don't have to run off, uh, it won't take long. Uh, and it would take less long if we had more help. So, is that right? Less long, more help. So, um, what's, I think I've asked this question before. If you weren't with us, then this will feel like a new question. If you were with us, act like you've never heard me ask it. Um, but it, it seems to be a good intro for this talk as well. What's usually the first question you ask a person you meet after getting their name? What do you do? What do you do? Um, follow-up is, why do you think this is the go-to question? Okay. <clears throat> so it's, you're, in that question, you, you learn, like, or you, you presume to learn a significant amount about that person just by understanding what they do, because they do it, because they're interested in it, because of all those things. Um, might go so far, and you can agree or disagree with me, but we might go so far as to think that their identity comes from what they do. Mike, you're a doctor. So we see Mike the doctor, right? It's like that's, that's who you are. Shay's the barber, right? It's like that's, it's like if I'm talking about Shay downtown, oh, you mean the barber, right? It's, it's almost like I got, my identity was because I was my brother's little brother. Uh, you're his little brother, right? It's just what I do. I wake up and I'm a brother. Um, but I could have, don't wake up and I'm a brother, but I'm my brother's brother. So, um, but our, our identity, I think we, we have this identity from activity. I don't think we consciously think that. I think we just naturally think that. Um, we are what we do. So what's the downside of that logic? If that's a natural logic, what's the, what, what could be the downside of that logic? If we are what we do, our identity comes from our activity, what could be the downside to that? Okay, you never know who you are. What else? Joe the Builder, right? Is that accurate? Something like that? Like Bob the Builder? Um, uh, what if your last project went bad? What happens to your identity? It's, yeah, it's not a good one. So the one thing that I identified as, now I'm no longer adequate in it. And if I feel inadequate in who I am, then, then I rise and fall based upon what I do. Right, and the next thing you're going to do, if last one went wrong or didn't go well, and now your tar your identity's tarnished, the next thing you're going to do is what? You're going to rush out and redeem yourself by doing more and doing better. Right? And what's what's the downside of that? If you're always trying to chase after a better identity because it's always based upon what you do, then at some point you're going to get exhausted trying to chase that flawless, perfect, desirable identity, right? If your identity comes from your activity, um, we are what we do, so we do a lot. Um, i also say this. If this is true, there is no sense of purpose. Man. Purpose or peace. If our identity comes from our activity, there's no sense of purpose, number one, because we're just simply trying to do something. We don't know why we're doing it. Like if we went back to our circle that we've worked with this, hey, it's still there. 
Um, we went back to the golden circle and we say why, how, and what. Our premise this, week, this month is we want to always start with why, why we do what we do, and then we'll say how we do what we do, and finally we'll get to what do we do to accomplish our why. But if our identity comes from our activity, we're actually working backwards, where we want to start inside and then go outside. If we start with what, then we're going backwards from the conversation we've had all month. We're starting with our what before we ever have a why. And if we start with our what before we ever have a why, then there's no peace in what we're doing because we're always trying to chase after this desirable identity. And if we fail at our what, then we fail as a person. So there's no peace, there's no rest, there's no purpose when we start with our what. I don't think churches, actually I know churches are not immune to this logic. Churches are not, it's not like because we are the church, we wake up and we get it right. It's like because the natural train of thought actually finds its way into the church and churches are not immune to this. And in fact, I'd say that um, today's church, church in our culture, typically, most of the time operates from a what before they ever get to a why. Most churches start with what do we do? before they ever consider why we do what we do. I would say that's the general logic. Two weeks ago, we started with the question, what is the purpose of the church? And I had, if you were here that week, I asked you to write down what you thought the purpose of the church was. I didn't ask it this day, but if you were with us that day, did you, can you remember? I said, what's the purpose of the church? I said, what's the why? I made the assumption that most of you are going to write a how or a what statement, not a why statement. Do you remember if you did that? Did you write a what? Mark said yes. Mark's honest. Mark's honest, right? And this just shows the natural logic that we have. We just don't know why the church exists. We just know what we think the church is supposed to do. Um, I got a little curious yesterday when I was uh, finishing up my studies for this, and it caused me to look at a website from a notable church, and I'm about to lay out what their website says, not as a way to bash them, but as a way to explain what I think I just said is true. Okay, so notable large church in our area, went to their website, and here's what I found. Um, They gave us a purpose in the opening of their website, and they said their purpose is this, It's to worship, connect, grow, and what was the word they used for this? Uh, And go. They want to help people worship, connect, grow, and then go to help others worship, connect, grow, and go. And that's a cyclical thing that you want to help people worship, connect, grow up, and then go out to therefore help more people do that as well. Seems good, um, but if I'm honest with myself, I think these (coughs) define how. It's not a why statement, it's a how statement, right? Our why statement from the past couple weeks has been, why does the church exist? It's revealing sons and daughters of God until Jesus unveils the fullness of his glory. He's just continually unveiling. How do you unveil? By helping people worship, connect, grow, and go. Right? So at this point, we've completely missed a why. Just jump straight into the how. And that's just a brief glimpse that I actually had to search for. And the more prominent thing on the website is (coughs) ministries. There's a ministries tab. And just in case you don't know, That's the what. So you jump on the website, it immediately takes you to ministries. That's what we do as a church. Um, So in the ministries, I can't even write this out because the list was long. Uh, They're a far bigger church than we are, so they have the ability to do more things. Um, But in the ministries, there was multiple categories. There was adults, students, kids, Pre-K, 
Recreation, worship, missions, and events. So that was the list of things, categories to define what we do as a church, the ministries that we have. In adults, there was Sunday school, and then there was a list of all different ages, um, all different phases of life. Um, So there's Sunday school, then they had what they called an equipping ministry. And in the equipping ministry, there was parenting, marriage, finances, adoption, and you could be equipped to do any one of those phases of life or roles in life. In adults, they also had men, various small groups, various events, women, various small groups, various events. Uh, I found this one interesting. In the women's, they had small groups, Zumba, stretching, and knitting. Small groups, Zumba, stretching, and knitting. I just want to go back. I'm not saying there's anything with Zumba, stretching, or knitting. I need to do more stretching. But I want to go back and say, does, maybe it does help you connect, but I'm not sure it's a growing and going thing, right? But there's a long list of things like that, and then there were various classes. Classes included grief classes, divorce classes, emotional health classes, history classes, self-discovery classes, English as your second language class, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of classes hosted by the church. Students had Wednesday worship. They had Wednesday worship for middle school, Wednesday worship for high school. They had Sunday school classes, various age groups again, small groups for middle school, small groups for high school. And then they had a whole calendar of events that were all coming up. They at least had a dozen in the next month for your students. Um, kids ministry had Wednesday worship again, segregated out of the high school and the middle school, and then they had all kinds of Sunday school classes. Preschool had Sunday school, Sunday nights, and music class. Recreation, one of my favorite, because I love to recreate. They had basketball, racquetball, volleyball, running, weightlifting, and all of the sorts, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Worship had traditional worship, casual worship. You could be a part of the orchestra, part of the choir, or part of the band. whole list of things that you can do there as well. In the missions, they had mission trips locally that you could be a part of, mission trips globally that you could be a part of. And once again, they had an events page that took you to a calendar that had dozens of events coming up for the church, more things that we can do together. Um, And it was interesting, in the history section, it said... We have been serving our community since blah, 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 blah. Right? That was a notable thing. In our history, it started with the statement, we've been serving our, a long history of serving our community. And then, you know, every good website has a call to action. Click this button, click this button. What it does is it attracts you and it wants you to click that button so that you'll take action to go to the step that they actually want you to do. And the action steps were threefold. There are three buttons they want you to click. Upcoming events, so that you can see our calendar of things that we're doing, so that you can go do them with us. Um, second one was a place for you. I mean, we have a place for you to belong, and it took you to these things so that you could go find your place in the age groups, phase of life, those things. Um, and the third one was an event list, once again. Two times they took you to the event list so that you would go find out all the things we're doing so that you could come do them with us. Um, so all that say this, not to run that down, but just to illustrate that we primarily want to know first, what does the church do? Because when we look at that website and say, what do they do? Then I get to decide if I want to do it with them. Right? I get decided if I want. Is this the church for me? Because if they do what I want to do, then maybe I want to go do that church thing with them. But then if I look at that and say, I don't want to do any of that, then I don't want to be a part of that church, right? So 
we primarily focus on, as a culture and even as a church, we focus on what first. If I asked why a church would do all of this, okay, if I asked why churches would do all of this, some may be sharp enough to point back to the how. Because if all of this doesn't at least fit here, then we've just started doing a lot of stuff. <laughs> we at least want to make sure that our what supports our how. But the dilemma is if we stop with how and we never find our why, then we may not ever accomplish anything. We may just rise and fall with our identity based upon what we do. There's no security, there's no peace, and there's no purpose. Right? We don't know what we're doing. We're just doing a lot of things. And that's the danger. Uh, and, and I think, because I've been a part of trying to strategize all these things myself before, and I think if we were honest and you asked, why do you do all that stuff as a church? I think if we were honest, sometimes we would say, because we think that's what people want. Like if we don't have all of these things, then they won't want to be a part. So you're, at that point, you've actually identified your why. Because we think that's what people want. That's our why. So therefore, we've filled our schedule full of a lot of what's based upon that why. There's always a why. You just got to identify it. And if you want to create all your what's based upon the why, this is what people want, then you're going to be busy and you're going to be stretched and you're going to be exhausted and you still don't know if you're going to fulfill the purpose of why the church exists. Okay? <clears throat> I just want us this morning to use this as an illustration. I've been here before, and I want us to hold this up against Jesus, and I want to ask, I want us to compare this being the typical approach to church, I want us to compare that to the Jesus' approach. Okay? Just want to hold that up and say, here's typical and then here's Jesus' approach, okay? So this is not a, here's how we don't do church. This is just typical example, grabbed off a website. I think it's normal in our culture. But we want to put normal up against Jesus and see how they compare, okay? There's a book called A Meal with Jesus by an author named Tim Chesser, and he points out there's a phase in script, or there's a phrase in Scripture that says, the Son of man came. The son of man is Jesus. That's a term taken from the book of Daniel where he sees the son of man coming on the clouds and he's, it's the glorified state of Jesus. It's God coming out of the heavens and Daniel's expecting this as a future event and he calls him the son of man and then when we get into the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, the four books that talk about the life of Jesus, we find multiple times that Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man. He is the one coming in all glory that the prophecies have talked about. So when we see Jesus naming himself the Son of Man, we know that he's talking about his glorified state when he's going to come back to gather all his people. So Scripture says three times that the Son of Man came, and then it gives a different thing that he came and, and why he came. Number one, the Son of Man came... Not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We see that in, in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The greatest service that Jesus did was to take all of our sin and all of our guilt upon his body. And it says in the scriptures, the, the wages of sin is death. We all deserve to die because we're all guilty of sin. And it says that Jesus instead died for us so that we could live. It says the wages of sin is death, but, the greatest word in all the scriptures, but, but the gift of God is eternal life that comes through Christ Jesus. Jesus died so that you and I could live. That's how he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom. The Son of Man came to serve not to be served. Second one was the Son of Man came to, <clears throat> to seek and save the lost. 
Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Luke 19 verse 10 makes this statement. So he came to seek and save the lost. Those who are wandering through life based upon the feels right, it feels right. We're just walking in darkness because we have no light of the world to guide our path. Jesus came as the light of the world so that you and I would no longer wander lost through our life, but we would have direction. We would have light illuminated to walk a path with him, knowing where we're going and who we're going with. We're no longer lost. We have been found by the person of Jesus. That's why he came. That's why he came. And the last one, this one we're going to look at this morning. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Son of Man came to serve, not to be served. Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Look at this. Look at this. Son of Man came to serve. That's why he came. How's he going to serve? By seeking and saving that which is lost and giving his life as a ransom for many. Well, what's he going to do to accomplish that? What was his program? Or what is our pro- what was the program of Jesus? <clears throat> Eating and drinking. Eating and drinking. It says in Luke 7, 34, The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And you say, look, that he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus didn't have a big fancy calendar. Jesus spent time eating and drinking with people who needed to be sought out and saved for which he came to give his life as a ransom for. He ate with those who needed a doctor. I did not come to help the well, but to heal the sick. I have not come... That those who do not need a doctor have come for those who do need a doctor. That's why I eat with those who are tax collectors and sinners, the outcasts, those who have been cast aside, those who are the most socially unacceptable people in our culture. Jesus was continually sitting at the table with those people to the point that he was labeled as excessive. I mean, all he does is just eat and drink with people that nobody else wants to be around. That's all he does, just eating and drinking with sinners, eating and drinking with those that are stealing from us, eating and drinking, eating. He's just always at a dining room table. What is the problem with this Jesus? Is he a drunk and a glutton? Right? That's all he was doing. That was his program. The meal was Jesus' program. It was his what? So I want to ask two questions this morning for us to consider. What role do meals play in revealing sons and daughters of God? That's our why. That's why we exist as a church. We are revealing sons and daughters of God, those who bear his image. What role do meals play in uniting a Jesus-centered crowd that has diverse giftings, and when we're united, we're all going to grow up to look like Jesus? What role does the meal play in that? Right. Because if that's our what, if the meal is one of our most significant programs as the church, it's one of our biggest gifts. If we don't have to be really busy to the point that we're all exhausted, what if we just had a really simple pattern of eating and drinking, eating and drinking? Could we accomplish our why? It's an interesting question. So when I looked at that this week, I asked this question. Um... We have to see what what happened during a meal with Jesus. What happened during meals with Jesus? When he sat down with tax collectors, those that everybody hated, they were stealing from him, the thieves, the crooks, and sinners, those that were socially unacceptable. What was happening in those meals that caused people to be saved? What happened in those meals that made that the most significant event in their life? So we're going to look at a handful of meals that Jesus had, all from the book of Luke. <clears throat> and we're going to ask that question, what did Jesus do during the meal to accomplish his why? Luke chapter 5, in verses 9, 29 through 32, we have Jesus who had just met a man named Matthew. Anybody know what Matthew did for a living? <clears throat> he was a tax collector. He was... Born as an Israelite, the nation of Israel, where Jesus came from, uh, but yet he was a, uh, an employee of the Roman Empire. 
So he worked for the enemy. Not only did he work for the enemy, but tax collectors were known for not just collecting their taxes, but taking a little extra for themselves. Like maybe two or three times as much as they were supposed to collect. They were thieves. They were stealing from their own people. Nobody liked them. And then Jesus meets Matthew and says, hey, why don't you come follow me? Come follow me. And the first thing that happens is what we find here in verse 29. Levi, when he had, Levi was also named Matthew. It's the same guy. When he had accepted the call to follow Jesus, he hosted a grand banquet for him, being Jesus, at his house. First thing Levi or Matthew did when he met Jesus was he hosted a party at his house, and he invited everybody. There's a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were guests with them, but the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious people, they were complaining to Jesus' disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So the first thing that happens when Jesus hooks up with Matthew is Matthew throws a party at his house with all his thieving buddies, and it's like, come meet this Jesus that I'm going to go with. Come meet this Jesus. Jesus displayed favor to unfavorable people. What happened in meals? Jesus displayed favor to unfavorable people. Now you can tell me how much you value me. You can tell me how much God loves me, but when you sit at a table with those who are not favorable in your community, now they actually feel, they sense that you really do favor me. We meet people on the streets, and we can have really good words towards them, correct words, gospel-centered words, and we're like, man, God loves you. You're valuable. But then when you're like, you're so valuable that I want you to come sit at my table. I want to come share a meal with you. I want to open my house to you. Jesus, in these meals, displays, displays favor to unfavorable people. Because we know that displays of favor speak louder than words alone. Right? Um, <clears throat> when I think about this context... Um, I got a text this week from a guy uh, that was been a friend of mine, actually, just kind of like one of those brotherhood relationships uh, over the past seven to eight years. Uh, and our relationship began because I knew his son. He was a part of our ministry, and I just met him. And um, I wanted to meet the father of the son that, that was a part of our ministry. So I, um, I said, hey, Let's have lunch. Let's have lunch. So me and John gathered for lunch, and I realized that John had disconnected from anybody who carried the name of Jesus. John still considered himself to be a believer in Jesus, but he, didn't, he had disconnected his whole life from anybody that had anything to do with the church or that carried the name of Jesus. John had a long list of things in his life that would have potentially in his mind disqualified himself from being a part of the church or disqualified himself from, from being linked arms with those who were a part of the church. His list was long. Uh, the relationship with his son was completely messy. Uh, if, if we had time to sit down and share that story, I don't know if it's mine to share at this context, but it's incredible the way that all this transpired. And then I invited him to a meal, and then that meal began a brotherhood between me and John to the point that eight years later he's texting me about all the things that God is doing in his life. I showed favor to someone who considered himself unfavorable and now he's walking in the favor of God in his life and in his marriage. All right? Because of a meal. Because of lunch. And that began the process in his life. So let's look at Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through 50. I'm not going to read the whole passage. Uh, but Jesus, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to eat with him. Once again, the Pharisees are the religious guys. They're the guys with power and position. They invited him to eat with him. So Jesus goes into his house, the Pharisee's house, and reclines at his table. 
And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table with the Pharisee's house, and she brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. Second thing that happened at Jesus' meals is Jesus had heart felt encounters. Jesus had heartfelt encounters providing opportunities to communicate good news. When Jesus sat down in a meal, he oftentimes, including this one, had heartfelt encounters with those who needed good news. And he, therefore, because he was at the table, had the opportunity to proclaim that good news through these emotional, intimate, heartfelt moments. Because he simply sat at the table with them. Um, <clears throat> we started our church, we used to meet in Sundays at the Main Street Station, and they had food trucks, as they do now. Food trucks were set up in the, in the parking lot, and one of the food trucks was called Alyssa's Food Truck. And the owner of Alyssa's Food Truck was Mary. And one of the things we wanted to do is we wanted to use those food trucks to host our lunches on Sundays, uh, after worship, uh, and and Mary, as she we, we invited her to cook for our church on that Sunday, and as she was preparing to cook, I was visiting with her and just talking with her. And Derek, you probably remember because we went and fixed her air conditioner inside of her food truck because she was having a really hard time getting that thing going. And um, it was just like she opened the floodgate of her life as she was preparing to serve a meal for us. Just like, I'm just sitting there on the sidewalk talking to her about her food truck. And then all of a sudden, just everything in her life just came out. From the death of her loved ones, loss of everything that she had, and just her situation. And she began to weep and just cry with this stranger that she had just met. And we just gathered because of a meal And her whole life just poured out through her reflections and her tears that day. It was just one of those heartfelt moments because of a meal. And amidst our encounter, she opened all that up. And then Derek and I had the opportunity because of that to point her towards Jesus and the good news that she has for her life. Because of a meal, this heartfelt encounter just happens. It just happens. We look at Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 10. Uh, Actually, I'm going to read to you from verse 12. It says, Late in the day the twelve approached and said to him, Jesus is out here teaching in this mountaintop setting. He's out. Just imagine he's out in the cow pasture. That's just the Arkansas version. Um, out here in massive cow pasture, he's, he's out there in the wilderness and he's teaching these thousands of people that just keep following him everywhere. Everywhere Jesus goes, thousands of people just flocking to him. They want to hear what he has to say. They want to see what he's going to do next. And, and here it is late in the day and the 12 approached Jesus, the 12 disciples who walked with him. Uh, and they said, send the crowd away so that they can go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a deserted place here. There's like thousands of people here and it's getting late. They, they need to go. They need to go. They got to go eat. They got to go sleep. And Jesus says, you give them something to eat. Feed them. And, and, and they say, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. And they said, unless we go buy food for all these people, for about 5,000 men were there. <clears throat> Jesus when it comes to meals, sees them more than necessities, but as 
Opportunities. <clears throat> Meals are more than necessities, they're opportunities. Jesus is like, why would I send 5,000 people away to go get something to eat because I got 5,000 hungry people. Let's feed them. The disciples are like, we ain't got enough food. Jesus is like, I am the son of God. Uh, we'll bless the, the little bit we have. My father's going to multiply it. It's an opportunity for us to proclaim and to display the realities of the kingdom towards these people. Why on earth would I waste that opportunity and send them away to go get something to eat? Because every time we gather for a meal, it's an opportunity to proclaim and display the realities of God's kingdom. So, <clears throat> why would I send them away when I could share a meal and a truth with them instead? And when Jesus multiplied the fish and the loaves, the people were in awe of how the kingdom of God operates and the authority that Jesus has in this world and in heaven. But if he sends them away, that doesn't happen. <clears throat> this church began with a meal. And some of you were at that meal. Uh, but we began with a meal, and on that October evening, we knew that everyone was going to eat dinner, and I just made the assumption that they should eat with us. Right? People already had plans to come to our meal. Stephen and people like Stephen were driving from two hours away to come be a part of this meal. But I'm like, you know what? We got burgers, and my neighbors are going to eat too, so I'm going to go down there and invite these crazy people that moved in down the street, we don't really know them yet. Their name's Mark and Whitney, and then some other people. <clears throat> but I'm like, you know, Mark's going to eat. He might as well eat with me. Because meals are more than necessities. Meals are opportunities. So I'm going to go invite these people to eat with us. <laughs> they might as well. And in the process, we're going to share some stories of the kingdom of God and what God's doing. and what We're just going to give them the invitation to be a part of it if they want to. Meals are more than necessities. Meals are opportunities. Jesus knew that. So why would I ever send somebody away to eat by themselves when they could stay and eat with me? It was his program. It was what he did to seek and save the lost, to ensure that he had opportunities to serve and give his life as a ransom for those people. Uh, in Luke 10... Another meal says, while they were traveling, he entered into a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into his home. She had a sister named Mary, who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks, and when she came up and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me here to serve alone? Tell her to give me a hand. I love that situation. Two sisters kind of nagging at each other, and one of them's like, Jesus Get her to help. The Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you're worried about, you're upset about many things, but one thing is necessary, and Mary has made the right choice, and it will not be taken away from her. Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, spending time with him, while Martha was going crazy, trying to fix the house. Jesus addresses the heart when it's revealed in everyday life through a meal. Jesus... <clears throat> Everyday life through a meal. So what happens when Jesus is sitting in this context with these two women, he's not just sharing a meal, but he has entered into their everyday life and how they operate and how they function as sisters. And he enters into their nagging as sisters. He enters into their frustrations as sisters. He entered into how one of them likes to rest and one of them likes to work. One wants to spend time with Jesus. One wants to do the dishes. And it's like because she wants to do the dishes, now she's frustrated that her sister doesn't have the same priorities that she does. And he's entered into the everyday context of her everyday life through the sharing of a meal. And that allows Jesus to address the heart. To address the heart. So, we, uh, we have seen families connect deeply with our church because of this principle. Right? I, I think I've heard Mark say it. He's like, when we came to that first meal, I said, when our church started with a meal, he's like, I just kind of liked how it was natural. 
And it, you know, the same thing we've said since the beginning, it's more like home. It's like, I, I really felt that. It felt more like home. So because of the natural everyday reality of meals like Derek hosted last night, some people have really connected deeply to our ministry. And it's been uh, a spot where it really connects to the heart. And because it's everyday life, it's real it's like my kids are being stupid running down the stairs. It's not like, hey, don't run in church. It's like, hey, you're doing slip and slides down Derek's stairs. And it's like, that's real life. And in the context of real life, we can address the heart. There may have been a time last night where Derek should have addressed my heart and said, dude, you're not even fathering your children. Right? You don't get to do that to me in this context because my kids are taken care of. But when we're in the context of everyday life sharing meals together and we're in our homes and we're respecting or disrespecting one another, then we get to speak the gospel directly into our hearts because we are in the context of everyday life. Some people have connected really well with us because of that, and I've also seen people leave because of that. Because when you get into the context of this everyday stuff and we're sharing meals together and... and and we're in that, then what also happens is the stuff that you like to keep veiled and covered now in the context of everyday life, it's uncovered, and you have two options. You can let it be healed, or you can cover it back up and go away. Right? It's like, we've had families come, and, it, and I can see it's just a struggle every time we gather for a family meal with the church. They're just like, this is miserable it's like, I know this is supposed to be good, but every time I come, my family's a wreck, and I just get tired of being visible in that. So instead of allowing that uncovering to be a healing process, let's just cover it back up and get out of here. And you can see that that becomes a very big struggle. But in the context of the meal, the heart is exposed, and we have an opportunity to address it. And Jesus knew that when he sat at the table with people. <clears throat> Two more I got for you. Luke 14 said to the one who had invited him, when you give a lunch or a dinner, Jesus is sitting at another table with more Pharisees, more religious people. <clears throat> and, and Jesus says, when you give a lunch or a dinner, this is in verse 13, 12. Chapter 14, verse 12. When you give a lunch or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors, because they might invite you back and you'd be repaid. On the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor, maimed, lame, and blind, and then you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Because Jesus is seeking and serving and saving, when it comes to meals, meals are for those outside the crowd. Jesus perceived meals to be an opportunity to sit across the table from those outside of his current crowd. Don't invite your brother. Don't invite your rich neighbor who's going to invite you back and feed you better. Invite those who can't repay you. Because a meal is not an opportunity for you to one-up. A meal is not an opportunity for you to solidify your position. A meal is an opportunity to seek and save those which is lost. A meal is an opportunity to connect with those outside of the crowd. My friend Greg... Some of you that have been around for a long time, you remember him. When I met Greg, he was suffering physically and emotionally and spiritually. He was a wreck, hurting. His brother had died, been taken away from him. His whole life had been taken away from him because of addiction and other things. He was, he was just hurting and reeling. And it was uh, physically in pain, emotionally in pain, um, <clears throat> We'd never been friends, but when I ran into him, I, I perceived that for some reason or another, Greg was open to me. Uh, you, you don't really understand why, but just sometimes people are. Um, <clears throat> so I invited Greg to church. No. So I took Greg to lunch. Took him to lunch. It's like Greg's open to me. Hey, Greg, let's go to church. No. Let's go to lunch. We sat across the table. 
And Greg will never, he'll never repay me for the, the time and the hours that I put into his life. He never will. <clears throat> but when I sat across the table, sitting with Greg across that taco salad, and, and I got to be a witness to him giving his life to Jesus. I'm like, I, I really don't care what he repays me. Right? It's like, I got to be the one that was there the moment that he quit fighting against who God is, quit fighting against what God wanted to do in his life. And I got to be the one that was there when he called upon the name of Jesus and asked him to save him. And he put his hope in Jesus. He put his faith in Jesus. The setting of our meals are for those outside the crowd. I love sharing meals with you guys. But if I only share meals with you guys, I miss out on all the Gregs that want to be a part of our lives. Right? There's a time for us to celebrate together and there's a time for us to invite others to the table. Last one is in Luke 22. When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. That's Jesus. And he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He's about to be handed over to Rome and empire to the Roman soldiers. He's about to be crucified, hung on a cross, bled to death, and they're going to bury him. And he says, for I tell you that I will not eat again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. It's his last meal to share with his disciples. And he took bread and he gave thanks and broke it and said to them, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus is sharing the Passover meal, a Jewish celebration with his disciples. And he used the meal to point... Meals, point. Meals point towards the suffering of Jesus and our victory. As we eat, we eat in remembrance of his death and in light of his resurrection. His suffering, his death, his broken body that was given up for us. We eat in light of that, but we also eat in light of our victory that he has not remained in the grave, but he was placed there three days later by the power of the Father who was raised to life that you and I may have victory and hope in a future, that you and I may have eternal life. When we sit across the table from one, we don't have to gather as a church and, and, and take bread and juice and say, now we're going to remember his suffering and our victory. When we ate last night, we ate in light of his suffering and our victory. When you gather as a family, you can break bread in light of his suffering and your victory. Right? When we gather as God's people and we share meals together, Jesus, he was, Jesus didn't sit down with these little cups that were full of juice and these little stale crackers that we often take communion with. He didn't sit down with that. He sat down with a feast. And he just happened to take the bread that was a part of that feast and he broke it. And he used that feast to point towards his death, his suffering, and his resurrection. It wasn't stale crackers and Welch's grape juice. It was the bread. And it was the cup of the feast. Jesus used the meal to point towards that. One of my favorite times that I have eaten to remember the suffering of Jesus in our victory. One of my favorite times to recall is when we were really new as a church <clears throat> and uh, AJ, we, we actually got to see AJ baptized in here Easter last year, uh, if y'all remember that. And uh, AJ's from India and he moved here. But then um, when we were just getting started, his parents came from India to visit with him, to spend some time with, they lived in his apartment it was kind of comical to watch, like two parents come live in his one-bedroom apartment with them. It's just 
fun to observe that tension. Um, but the day after they got off the plane from India, they were sitting in my living room. And we're eating, pointing to the suffering of Jesus and talking about our victory that we have in him with these people who have just got off the plane from India all the way around the other side of the world. And we're sharing our faith, we're sharing our culture, we're sharing our family with them. In the context of a meal, it is one of the most surreal moments I've ever had. She's in her, um, all of her Indian attire. And my kids are like, why does she have that on and why does she have a dot on her forehead? And I'm like, this is cool. This is awesome. Right? It's the suffering and the victory that has brought us to the table. And we're at the table with people that literally live on the other side of the globe that have never considered the gospel, the claims of Jesus. And here we are sharing our life with them as we share a meal with them. It was incredible. I think about, when I think about meals, I think about Tyler and I working together day after day after day. And I mean, work is work, Right? But we have a regular rhythm of sitting down for lunch every day. And it's really interesting that we work together eight to ten hours a day, but then we stop and we share a meal together, and that's where discipleship happens. That's where we kind of rub against each other, and we talk, and we share, and we reflect, and then his thoughts influence my thoughts, and mine influence him, and then we grow, grow up to be more like Jesus simply by sitting across the table. It's not because we know each other. It's because we share meals together on a regular basis. The meal is the time for us to slow down. The other day, I sat across the table from a a pastor and a city leader in Detroit. He pastors a church that's right off of 8 Mile in Detroit. And I'm sitting across the table from him. And it was interesting to think that over one meal with this one man, that the the eyes of my heart were open to have compassion for what it's like to be an African-American man who grew up in the urban context in America. One meal. I went from being oblivious to compassionate from one meal because I sat across the table from this man. I became more like Jesus because I shared a meal with that man. Because it was one meal. Last night, Derek steps into the program of Jesus. Right? It's like, I'm just going to step into it. And I'm going to do what Jesus did. Jesus came eating and drinking, so I'm going to spend a lot of time eating and drinking with people so that we might have the same influence that Jesus had, utilizing the same program that Jesus utilized. It's been happening for 2,000 years, revealing sons and daughters of God, utilizing all of our diverse giftings in the context of meals so that more people might grow up to take on the image of Jesus. Now, I don't want to oversimplify what it's like to be the church, and I don't want to oversimplify there is value in hosting this program and that program, and they all have their place, and they're all good, and they can all help. But I want to simplify our thinking. It says if you want to invite somebody to church, why don't you invite them to a meal? If you want to invite somebody to Jesus, why don't you invite them to a meal? It doesn't have to be that complicated. It doesn't have to be that difficult. We have a, did you get that picture? <clears throat> this is our website. This is the homepage of our website. After I looked at somebody else, I'm like, well, I, don't, I wonder what I'd put on ours. I wonder if I'm a little complicated. The, the homepage of our website, it's got our logo, and then you scroll down just a little bit, and it's, it, this is the opening statements. These are the words. What if? What if church was more than Sunday? What if it were a meal? A party, a listening ear, and a response of good news. What if church was a meal? What if it was a meal? I'm going to end with one question for you. Actually, three questions in one. What if it was? What would you do different if church was a meal? Who would you invite? What would you do different and who would you invite? I just gave you what Jesus has done and the impact that it's had in multiple people's lives. And I just gave you a dozen stories of how the meal has impacted me and dozens of people in my life. 
What if church was a meal? What would you do different and who would you invite? Who's the first person you would invite to church? I want to make the assumption that everything our programs that we do as churches are designed to do, Jesus accomplished over a meal. Okay? Every program that we as churches try to do, Jesus accomplished over a meal. I don't want to oversimplify the function of the church, but I do want to maximize the potential of your table. What would you do different and who would you invite? We have a calendar over there for our missional communities for you to host a setting that can look identical to what Derek did last night or it can look completely different. You know the people within your reach. You know the people that you would want to invite either to the table or to that setting. You know those people. You know what you need to host. You know what needs to be done different. And then invite them to the church by inviting them to your table. It can be a setting that we all gather together and help you do like Derek did last night, or it can be a setting that maybe, you know what, you're just like, hey, I just need one other family to help me host this. You know the setting. You know what it looks like to invite people to your table. We don't. So we're asking you to sign up on the sheet over there just over the next number of months. We're going we're to commit to host in this month, in January. I think Stephen and Hannah are hosting in December. They know what it looks like to host those and to invite those that are around them. So they're going to do that. We're going to help. we got opportunities in January, February, and March that are open for people to put their name on and say, I commit to hosting in this setting. And I'll cast a vision for it. If you need help casting a vision for it, let's discuss Let's talk, let's consider, and I'll help you do that. What would you do different and who would you invite? <clears throat> the most, one of the most influential places of my ministry, over and over and over, has proven to be the dining room table. See more people discipled, healed, and come to Christ probably at the table than anywhere else. In McDonald's, over a Big Mac, La Hacienda over a taco salad. I've probably had more of those moments than I have moments like that in here. You can too. Yeah. Questions, comments, thoughts, concerns? Any reflections? It's one of those days I ask less questions. Less questions, so now when I ask the end question, you're, you've positioned yourself with quietness. Once again, if you don't have to rush off, uh, we're going to unload some Christmas decor and do our windows up real quick, put a tree in the kids' space, um, and uh, be a part of our downtown simply by decoring our old school window. So, uh, super glad all of you are with us this morning. Um, Those that were with us last night, really, really excited you were with us there. It's not about what we do, it's about why we do it. We hope that our what always supports our why. We hope that our what always supports our why.
why I want us to be very clear about why we exist, because otherwise we're all just going to get really busy, and we're not going to know why. And I'm already busy. I don't need busyness. I want effectiveness. I want my time to count. I want it to count. I want your time to count. I don't want to busy you up. I want to help you be effective for the gospel. Let me pray for you.